The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Elizabeth Hilborn. She is an environmental scientist, a registered nurse, and a veterinarian with expertise in honeybee medicine. For decades, she has grown fruits and vegetables for her family and local community in central North Carolina. She's also a writer and author of the book we'll be discussing today titled Restoring Eden, Unearthing the Agribusiness Secret That Poisoned My Farming Community, published by Chicago Review Press. Dr. Hilborn's scientific reports in epidemiology and environmental health focus on the health effects associated with water pollution, emerging infections, and extreme weather events. She served as an Epidemic Intelligence Service Fellow at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and she is a Senior Staff Scientist at the Environmental Protection Agency's Office of Research and Development. Dr. Hilborn appreciates the power of the One Health Paradigm, which reveals the complex interconnections among Earth's life forms and how our lives are fully dependent upon a healthy planet. Welcome, Dr. Hilborn. Thank you so much for having me, Melinda. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, before we dive into this book, I have to ask you about your unique veterinarian practice. You are a honeybee veterinarian. Can you tell us what that is exactly? Sure. My practice is devoted to the health of honeybees, and I had the opportunity to work in honeybee medicine because of a Food and Drug Administration rule change that changed the rules for how livestock receive antibiotics. Honeybees receive antibiotics for diseases of their young, and if those antibiotics, which are also used in human medicine, need to be prescribed for honeybees or used, a veterinarian is now involved due to the rule change. That just happened in 2017, right before our farm was contaminated. So prior to 2017, honeybees were routinely given antibiotics? Yes, sometimes as a preventive measure. So I'm glad to see the rule change, but I know it has put a burden on beekeepers because now there's an extra step to getting what they need or perceive they need to keep their bees. That's so interesting. And I think, too, it's a different way of thinking about bees to think about them as livestock. But that is indeed what they are considered, right? Sure. Now, bees in general, that's a very large category. We have over 3,600 native bees in North America, and they don't have as much recognition as the imported European honeybees that came over with colonists in the at least the 18th century, but maybe even the 17th century, and they were brought over to produce honey. And of course, now they're spread throughout the United States, and people cultivate them 
for honey and also use them for pollination because the native bees are in trouble and we need honeybees to back up pollination services now in many areas. Right. Well, what I love about your book is it uniquely connects so many critical dots in food, health, and agriculture. And I think it's probably one of the most important reads for the new year, just to help us see how with the demise of so many species, whether we're talking about insects or birds, plants, etc., the loss of biodiversity, I think your book makes it painfully clear what is truly happening. So how did this book come to be? What exactly did you start witnessing on your farm that compels you to tell us all the story? Yes, thank you. I never thought I would be a writer of popular literature. I'd always been a technical science writer. I wrote reports in peer-reviewed journals for my job in public health and medical journals, environmental journals. But in 2017, I discovered a wetland in our community, just dead. All the life was gone. There was a gray scum. And I was shocked because it had formerly been a center of life. So many amphibians and birds and dragonflies and butterflies. Just an amazing place that I would spend time to watch the wildlife. In May of 2017, when I found it absent, just bereft, it was so shocking to me, Melinda, and I really didn't believe my eyes. I'd never seen anything like that. I had the presence of mind to collect water samples, but at the beginning, I just thought it was a wetland problem. And then you realized that it was a much deeper problem. I think what is so phenomenal about your book is that it describes how you went about in a scientific manner trying to find out the roots of this dead wetland, what happened exactly. How did you go about this? You collected the water samples. Was it easy to find a place where you could bring those water samples to be analyzed? Well, my first task was to determine a set of chemicals that may be present in the water. Because if you think about natural surface waters, they're full of all kinds of chemicals. We had a farmer upstream. They used nitrogen, so we knew that was probably in the water. There were dead leaves at the bottom of the water that were releasing tannins and other organic materials. So I had to investigate to figure out what could be in the water that would kill both insects and amphibians. So I reached out to people who work with water. I reached out to the local farmer initially to try to start my investigation, but it took many weeks to come to a short list of contaminants. And even though they turned out to be the most commonly used pesticides in the world right now for agriculture, they're kind of a new class of pesticides that tend to be dissolved in water more easily than the older pesticides. And what shocked me so much was we don't have the capability here in North Carolina at the time in 2017 when I was searching to evaluate these pesticides. We still are looking for the older, more fat-soluble pesticides, ones that dissolve in fat easier, they need different equipment to detect these 
water-soluble pesticides, and they didn't have them. And I searched a long time to find a certified laboratory, accredited laboratory, that could give me some accurate results from my water sample. And you were delivering these samples blindly. You didn't really know what exactly you were looking for. How do you go about that process? Well, before I delivered them, I had to make sure I had a list of probable contaminants. So the process included talking to my neighbors, first of all, hey, what's going on at your place? This is what I'm seeing. We've lived here for well over a decade when this happened, and I know my neighbors well, and I reached out to the local farmer who'd been renting my neighbor's field. I'd known him for over a a decade since before we moved here. I was like, hey, what did you use in the fields? And he told me he just prepared the field with Roundup to burn all the vegetation down. Then he planted his corn seed, followed up with nitrogen a few days later. So it seemed totally normal. And when I reached out to the agricultural experts to say, hey, could any of this do this? They were like, no, that's totally routine. There's no way that cornfield could hurt your wetland. But it just didn't add up. It took me a long time to figure it out. And when I finally figured out that it might have been the cornfield, the farmer helped me by supplying very specific information about what he'd used, including the lot number from the corn seed. And that turned out to be really important because... Corn seed is coated with a mixture of pesticides now. Over 90% of corn crops grown in the United States are grown with this mixture of very potent pesticides already applied to the corn seed. So when I first reached out to the farmer, he didn't report this pesticide use. Very strong insecticides, very potent fungicides, but they can vary depending on the specific seed. So by giving me his lot number, I was able to make a short list of the chemicals that I knew were applied to the agricultural field. And that's how I was able to finally get my samples analyzed. Yeah, this was such an extraordinary process. And I also want to mention that when you put your arm in this water, and your arm started to burn, somebody told you, well, you should just talk to your doctor. It's my understanding that most doctors are not trained to think about pesticide exposures when somebody comes in with a rash, say, or with a burning arm. What was your experience? Well, I had a very good relationship with my physician, First of all, I had no intention of touching that water. I knew that there were all these dead insects around it. All the frogs were gone. I knew something was wrong with it. But there was a turtle that was suspended in the water column, a box turtle. It wasn't moving. And I was just shocked because there was so much death around it. So without thinking about my own safety, I pulled the turtle out. And that's how I ended up touching the water and You know, sometimes we do things, right, that aren't the best idea, but it seemed the right thing to do at the time. So I had a very special relationship with my doctor. I'd known him for over 20 years, and he knew I was a science nerd. He knew I was an animal 
lover. He knew that I was a veterinarian and knew a lot about environmental science. So when I came to him and said, hey, I might have been exposed to some sort of pesticide or other toxicant or some sort of chemical contaminant, he took me at his word. And he pulled a blood panel and a chemistry panel just to see if I had any signs of injury, and I did not at the time. The only other thing other than the burning arm was I got really these spells of intense dizziness Mm. where I would have to sit down, and that lasted for maybe, I don't know, in retrospect, maybe a week, Mm. but they resolved pretty quickly, so hopefully I'm fine. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's interesting because you report that in 2017, when this incident happened, 90 million acres of corn were planted in the United States. And as you mentioned, the majority, well over 90% of those corn seeds are coated with both insecticides and fungicides. And once that application of pesticide is made to the corn that's planted, it's no longer seen as a pesticide. Yeah, that was one of the strangest things I learned because I tried to learn more about the insecticides, in particular neonicotinoids or neonics for short, are used to coat these corn seeds. So I tried to learn more about their usage, and certainly they're used on nursery plants, on fruits and vegetables, but the seed usage appeared invisible to me. I couldn't get a handle on it, and later I learned that these seeds are considered treated articles, and they're not regulated as pesticides. And I saw that manifest in multiple ways after this incident. Regulatory officials are really confused, in my experience, about what they are. We had a seed spill not too far from our community, and this was years after I'd seen so much damage from these seeds. Let me just give you some perspective about how potent these insecticides are. One corn seed with just over a milligram of neonic coating can kill over 80,000 honeybees. Mm. And an acre of corn starts with about 30,000 seeds. And we had multiple acres upstream of us. And before I knew this about the potency, it didn't make sense to me how a cornfield could cause so much damage, so widespread for so long. But now I understand the neonics that contaminated the water has a half-life or the time it takes for the concentration in the water to decrease by just half of around three years under certain soil conditions. I don't know what they were in my soil, but so here in 2023, we still haven't recovered from this single incident. So, yeah, these are very potent, very persistent chemicals, and they are not tracked like pesticides. When I found the seed spill above a gentleman's pond, I went to the house and said, hey, we have to get this off the road. It could kill your pond when it rains. And we swept up the seed and put it in bags and a sheriff's deputy drove by and just laughed at us. And later, I found out from Department of Transportation 
that if I'm called about a toxic seed spill, they don't consider it toxic. They would have just used a sweeper truck to push it off the pavement onto the side of the road where it still would have been a risk to the pond, to local birds feeding, to local children playing. These are brightly colored and potentially attractive to children. So I learned between the disconnect of the biological effects of these seeds and how they're regarded by farmers, by regulatory officials, they're really under the radar. Yeah. Dr. Hilborn, let me take one break because we are halfway through, and I want to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, and we are joined today by Dr. Elizabeth Hilborn. She is an environmental scientist, a registered nurse, and veterinarian with expertise in honeybee medicine. She's also the author of the book that we're diving into today, titled Restoring Eden, Unearthing the Agribusiness Secret That Poisoned My Farming Community. Dr. Hilborn, of course, the poisons that have been contaminating our nation are deemed as necessary tools in the farmer's toolbox to, quote unquote, feed the world. But as you so brilliantly reveal in your book, and I think it reflects on the fact that you're both a nurse and a veterinarian and you're growing food on your land as well, you state that food and nature are things to be recognized as interconnected and vitally important. And so we're not really feeding the world. We are contaminating the life around us on which we depend to nourish ourselves and feed our communities and the larger world. So what you experienced was truly a chemical trespass with damage that goes on for years. Yes. So I think about our food future, and I think about how we can't consider agriculture as a solely human activity. We as people do not grow food. We grow it within a a biological context, a community of helping organisms. These include the fungi in the earth, the bacteria that help to feed plants. Plant roots depend upon these helpers to get nutrients and water from the soil. We depend upon arthropods, insects, and other invertebrate animals that condition the soil and keep it fluffy and full of organic material. They break down dead material and turn it into fertile soil. And I saw that very clearly. After the chemicals killed so many insects, the soil itself around the wetland was thick and flabby, like a pudding, like I could touch it and it almost vibrated. There were no air spaces when I dug in it. There were no earthworms. There were no beetles on the surface, no ants. These are animals that aerate the soil, make fertile soil, and they were gone. So we were left with a lifeless medium that in the long run will not serve us to feed future generations. I really focus on pollinators, and those were gone. We lost our pollinators. Our vegetable garden failed. We had abundant 
fruit that had been pollinated in March before this happened, and that was the last year we had a normal harvest. We still have not recovered. Mm. So the insects that are carnivores, they're predator insects that control crop pests. They're susceptible to these insecticides as well. So we're killing or helping insects. About 95% of the insects on Earth are helping insects. And we're killing those with the insecticides indiscriminately because the insecticides do not target pest insects. So we're losing our community that makes our soil fertile, our community that pollinates our plants, and the community that helps control crop pests. And that is our food future, is that community. And I went from a personal realization of when I picked a basket of pears and I shared them with neighbors, I would say, here, I grew these pears. I would never say that anymore because I don't grow those pears. I may have planted the tree, but after that, it was my actions in collaboration with the natural living world that put those pears into that basket. Mm. You know, I think that so many products are sold and we just assume that they've been tested to be safe. In other words, if they're sold, then some agency has tested these substances. And as you point out in the book, there are synergies between these compounds. So you've got the farmer that's using Roundup, and Roundup, of course, the active ingredient is glyphosate. But when Roundup is tested for safety, all of those other chemicals in Roundup besides glyphosate are not tested along with the glyphosate. So then you've got glyphosate plus nitrogen plus these neonicotinoids, and you describe that they are not ever tested for their synergistic damaging relationships. Yeah, we have this lag between approval of the specific active ingredients for each pesticide and then what happens in the real world. And my background's in clinical medicine, so to me it was a great analogy with drug approval. We can do our best with clinical trials, but it's still just a snapshot, a small slice of reality upon which we're making decisions. And with pesticides, like with drugs, you go out and there's all kinds of mixtures that aren't necessarily anticipated. And unlike drugs, where we have a little more post-approval tracking, as I understand, we do not have that with pesticides. So it takes independent scientists who are seeing maybe harm or just want to check up on different populations of animals, say, oh, something's wrong here, and then it's very difficult to backtrack and figure out what it is, as I discovered. So I do see that as a flaw in the system. We're putting very potent biocides, and by biocides I mean a chemical that can influence life in some way. We're releasing those into the world, and we don't really know what we're doing. Humans do a lot of very powerful things, and we don't always fully understand what we're doing. Right. And even farmers who recognize problems, and 
I think more and more people are waking up to the fact that we're losing beneficial insects, we're losing frogs. People will say, gosh, I haven't heard a whippoorwill in a long time on my property. We recognize that something's changed, but we don't exactly know what it is. And for farmers who decide, I think I want to plant corn seed, say, that isn't coated with a neonicotinoid, it's becoming more and more impossible to find untreated seeds as the industry has consolidated. Yeah, that's my understanding is that industry consolidation has made it very expensive for farmers to buy these proprietary seeds. That's one of a major increase in input costs. And farmer debt is at an all-time high. My understanding is that it has exceeded the early 80s for debt burden. So many farmers are turning to lower input options. And that's one of the things that gave me so much hope is that especially young farmers who recognize this relationship with the natural world are looking for more low pesticide options. And I have seen industry responding with giving uncoated seed options, and I hope that continues. It appears from my non-systematic research that those options are increasing since this event occurred in 2017, when it seemed almost impossible that, you know, you'd have to buy certified organic seeds and they were difficult to find in short supply. I'm seeing more options now. And I'm seeing and hearing about more farmers who are choosing low pesticide methods like regenerative agriculture, agroecology, organic agriculture, and integrated pest management as using pesticides as a very last resort using all the management tools first to keep the soil fertile, to keep the healthy, beneficial insect populations so you don't need pesticides in the first place. And if for some reason a pest pressure gets too high, using pesticides as a last resort. And I'm seeing that sensibility increase. Now, I may be in a little bubble because I'm looking for it. I may be in a little bubble because I'm in an area where there's a lot of alternative agriculture. But I'd like to hope that that message of higher returns per acre is spreading throughout the world as people are like, wait a minute, I don't want to be a cash cow anymore. I have a business to run here, and I'm going to make the choices that bring me the best return and preserve my resource, my farmland, my helping community. Mm. Well, unfortunately, Dr. Hilburn, we are out of time, but I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN in Columbia, Missouri. But most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Elizabeth Hilborn. She's an environmental scientist, a registered nurse, veterinarian with expertise in honeybee medicine, and the author of an extraordinary mystery, a wake-up call, and a beautiful exploration into our larger food system. The title of her book is Restoring Eden, 
unearthing the agribusiness secret that poisoned my farming community. Dr. Hilborn, thank you so much for being such a keen observer and an excellent investigator and for telling your story so that we may all benefit. Thank you so much, Melinda, for having me. And it's been a pleasure.